Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Road podcast. Today, we welcome on Mark Smith, the high performance director and head coach of the women's Olympic softball team for Softball Canada. Uh, Rick, I, I enjoyed our conversation with, with Mark today about you know creating winning environments and, and consistent environments. And I think we we can take a lot away from this conversation. And you know, right off the bat, I just wanted to say that the audio is a bit scratchy at points, but the the content of the conversation and the episode itself is is really good stuff and, and stuff that we can take away to any environment that that we're in. And you know, one thing that I, I really enjoyed is is just talking to him about you know, what it is that makes his environments successful, you know, what, what it, does it take to win at the, at the highest level? And, you know, he, he said a quote that uh, good isn't good enough. You need to constantly push yourself. And I think that's kind of a, a general message for the, for the whole episode today. Overall, I feel that the episode with Mark today was a very strong one. And I also feel that it was a really good conclusion about the things we have been discussing so far on our show. And I especially enjoyed about the conversation with Mark today, how much he's actually highlighting the process, team culture, and the importance of creating a purpose-driven and value-based environment and what the outcomes of a team actually can be over the long-term run if you have this kind of culture inside your team. And I hope everyone who is listening to this episode today will take something away from it. And I hope everyone is enjoying it. So we'd like to welcome on Mark Smith, the high performance director and head coach of the women's Olympic Canadian softball team. Mark, thanks for joining us today. How's everything uh, where you are in Canada? It's nice here, actually. We've got some above seasonal temperatures. It's uh, 21 degrees, I think, here today, which would be well above seasonal for, for November the 10th. So no complaints. Hey, 21 degrees, that sounds pretty exciting. We have, yeah, yeah. hopefully the sun is a little bit shining. We are also actually enjoying still a little bit uh, sun here, but that's actually pretty unusual here in Finland. It's my third year here, and I think we never had at this time of the year still sun. So it's very enjoyable. Good, very good. Ah, yeah, yeah. So to start a little bit with the conversation, so what is one thing that you have learned recently and how are you using it in your coaching right now? I think probably the thing that's been newest to me or newest in terms of something that I've started to put greater use in has been the use of analytics. Uh, in the world of softball, baseball, analytics has really taken, you know, the softball, baseball community by storm, probably in the last six to seven years where so much, so many decisions that are made on skill level of players and when teams are looking to uh, draft players at the collegiate level, et cetera, there is a lot of information gathered, uh, a lot of data gathered, and that data is used in, in informing decisions that are made. I've certainly always believed as somebody that's been involved in my sport for a long time that there's a, a place for analytics, but it hasn't been something, to be honest, that I've spent a great deal of time um, involving myself with, and in large part because uh, maybe it's my age showing, but, but you know, I came up playing the game where going and scouting and doing your homework against you know the types of opponents you were going to face and keeping your own notes and you know 
completing your own charts and in terms of how you wanted to strategize and prepare to play against competition has always been the way that I've done things. And quite frankly, it's, it's been successful for me. So I guess much like anyone that has a tried and true method, you tend to stick with the things that you've been successful with, but certainly I'd say over the last three to four years, I have come to have a much greater appreciation for the value of analytics and how they can be used in conjunction with the other data that you gain from, you know, from watching and observing and and uh, that type of thing to to use that and integrate that into decision making and strategizing and game planning. So that's probably the one area that I would say that I pushed myself out of my comfort zone a little bit and have become a little more comfortable and familiar with using analytical data to help shape some of the decisions we make. I think that's that's pretty interesting. I'm uh, my background's in computer science, so I'm a, I'm a pretty analytical guy with with that kind of thing. And I've definitely noticed that watching some baseball and and just noticing kind of how much it's taken over the sport. And you see so many like uh, shifts and everything now that, that mm -hmm. are a result of that. So it's it's interesting to see, and I think it's one of the the sports that's most um, using mostly using the analytics. So I would agree. Yeah. So we, we mentioned your, your role as the high performance director and the, the head coach there at Softball Canada. Can you describe a little bit about your, your background and, and how you got into that role? My background is that I've played the sport of softball from the time I was 14 or 15 years of age. And uh, around the age of 19, I was a member of our men's national team program. And I was involved with that program for approximately 15 years as an athlete. And then a few years after retiring from you know, playing internationally, I became involved as a coach and have been involved as a coach for, I think this will be my 25th year. So it's a sport that I've grown up with. Uh, my father was a softball player, um, the province that I've lived in and grown up in at the time when I was coming up had very competitive men's fast pitch softball. So I came by my interest in love of the game quite, quite honestly. And um, that was sort of my, 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 my you know, my, my, my initial introduction to it, I've lived and played really all over the world. And um, when I got involved with coaching at the national team level, it was something that I, I really saw myself as doing for a few years and, and then likely, you know, falling into other uh, things to do or other hobbies, but it's, it's sort of stuck with me and, and I've enjoyed it immensely. And I'd like to think I've developed some pretty good skills with it. So, you know, I've been involved with Softball Canada now as an organization for, gosh, you know, since the, since the early 80s. So I've been involved with them for a very long time. In uh, 2016, when women's softball was added to the Olympic program for 2020, our women's national team at the time were ranked third in the world. And as a result of that, we were eligible for additional funding um, to prepare our program for 2020. And so... Uh, what we've done or what the organization decided to do was to actually hire a head coach, uh, combination head coach, high performance director, which is, which is me, to, to plan our program for the next you know, four years leading to Tokyo 2020 and to also give a little more shape to our developmental programs. We have a junior program that's a U18 program. We have an elite program that are for athletes who are have graduated from the junior ranks, but are not quite ready to play at the senior international level yet. So my role as the high performance director is very similar to sort of conventional terms. If you think about a general manager and a head coach, it's really a combination of the two. 
And so in addition to the senior Olympic team, which I'm the head coach for, I also am responsible for two other teams and the staffing of those teams and the planning and budgeting and all of the things that go into putting those teams together and, and, and preparing them for play. They all still fall under my responsibility area. That sounds pretty exciting. As I said previously, before we started to call, I'm very excited that we have the opportunity to speak with someone who has this background in softball because I'm not very familiar with the sport and I'm really looking forward to the conversation and the stuff you have been bringing out sounds very interesting and your role overall is very broad. So I think we will get a lot of out, we will get a lot of things out of this conversation. And so Darren Cruzel Brink, previous guest from our show, he recommended us that you that you are you could be a potential guest in our show. And he recommended to us to talk about the idea of the expertise of winning and that this is actually something you can develop throughout your life. And could you please describe what that is and how someone becomes an expert at winning? When I read your question, it, it that was a curiosity for me too, to be completely honest with you, Rick. I'm not sure that I consider myself to be an expert in winning. Um, I think yeah, I've certainly had the good fortune over the years of being a part of some very successful teams as an athlete and being part of some very successful teams as a coach. And, uh, you know, often if you're part of good teams and, and, you know, with a little luck and hard work, you can, you can be very successful and win championships. And I've had my, my fair share of that. And I'm grateful for that. I, I think there's no guarantees that you're going to win every time you step on the ice or the field or the pitch. But I do believe that there are elements that, contribute to building successful programs. And I guess if we're talking about an expertise in winning, to me, it's about the framework you build to allow athletes to perform to the best of their ability to be successful. So I think of things like, first and foremost, surrounding yourself with the right people. Um, I have always been someone who has been very, very um, open to seeking the advice or counsel of people who've had success. And I've never been shy about picking up the telephone or sending an email to a coach that's been successful to ask if I can have, you know, 30 minutes of their time to pick their brain about a particular thing. And, um, and that has served me well. I, I can't think of anybody that I've ever reached out to that's ever said no and not given me, you know, the time to, to ask questions and share, provided their perspective on things. So I think making sure that you are, um, surrounding yourself with people who are there for the right reasons. And the right reasons to me are that they're very athlete centered in their thinking, that they are there to help provide the best possible opportunity and environment for athletes to be successful in. Uh, I think that's critically important because as a coaching staff, you spend a great deal of time together. Most of the time you have to be on the same page. It's not a matter of everyone agreeing with everything that's done. You need, you know, you need divergent Uh, uh, perspectives. You want people around you that are going to challenge your thinking as the head coach, but are also willing to be challenged in their thinking. And, and I think if you can get that mix right, then you set the environment up to potentially be successful. I think that once you've got the right people around you to provide that environment for your athletes, it is about creating what I call a safe and nurturing environment. And what that means to me is that It's emotionally and physically safe for athletes. So it's a place where they can come and be who they are, where they will be respected for what they bring, where they're not going to be judged, um, where they're going to be given the opportunity to, to tell their truth and to speak you know, in terms of how they see things, but also 
they need to be willing to hear sometimes things they may not want to hear about how a coaching staff may see things or they may be challenged in terms of work ethic or they may be challenged in terms of you know how they want to do things and whether that fits into the team concept etc but in order to get to the place where you can have those honest and meaningful conversations you have to create an environment that allows athletes to feel safe in being able to do so and i would suggest that having coached both men and women um, males tend to um, blow things off and and will often pretend that things don't bother them that actually might whereas females are going to be or in my experience females tend to be a lot more open and honest about things that they don't like or things that they they are uncomfortable with and so i've spent my last 12 years 13 years coaching females and i i know how important it is to create the environment for them to be able to feel that they can be who they are and if you're lucky enough to be able to achieve that type of space then it's just amazing how uh, teams take shape and how um, camaraderie and culture forms. And I think you do get the best performance out of players when they're in that place. I think setting the bar high is really important. You know, if we're chasing an Olympic gold medal, which we are, then it's about doing the things we need to do to be the very best in the world. So good isn't good enough. You, you need to be constantly pushing yourself, challenge yourself to be the best you can possibly be because there will be those moments when you're playing in Olympic games, when the execution of a particular skill and getting the job done in a particular moment, uh, you know, the success or failure of the team lies in the balance. And so the higher the bar and the harder people push themselves, the more comfortable they are being in those uncomfortable situations. And so I think as a coaching staff, you have to set that example and you have to push people towards achieving that success without pushing them, you know, over the edge, but at the same time, you know, pushing them to constantly be looking for a better performance from themselves. And I think that's critically important. I think as a leader, you have to set the example. So I've always tried to be a coach or a leader that um, walks the talk and doesn't ask anything of others that I'm not prepared to do myself. And I think that goes a long ways when it comes to building meaningful and trusting relationships with athletes that if they see you carrying the water bottle or lining the fields or raking the fields after a rain or doing the little things that oftentimes people wouldn't expect you to do any longer because of the stature you've reached, I think when they see your human side and that you're willing to put in and work just as hard as they are, I think you get a different level of uh, buy-in from the athletes. Um, I think it's important to hold everybody accountable from your coaching staff to your athletes and you know, all the rules that we live by as a team, we all live by. It's not a case of, you know, the athletes can do this, but the coaching staff can do that. If we set a rule, the rule applies to all of us. And I think that's something over the years that has bought us a lot of credibility with the teams we've coached is that we don't, we don't, there is no hierarchy. Everyone understands who the coaching staff are and everybody understands the roles that coaches play and the roles that athletes play, but there's no distinction in terms of whether one group is treated any differently or any better than anybody else. And I think that goes a long ways towards building team. And then allowing the athletes, you know, a, a, a bit of a say in things. Um, I, you know, this is, we're there for them. We're there to create an environment that allows them to be the best they can possibly be. And so when I say allowing them to have a say in things, I don't mean from the perspective of the coaching staff kind of withdraws from decision-making and that's given to the athletes. But there are lots of times when the athletes can contribute to things um, and oftentimes we'll have a better or a different insight than the coaching staff will. And I think in those moments when you have the opportunity to do that, it is important to give them some ownership. 
Uh, we've all been a part of teams in the past, whether as athletes or we've observed where the coaching staff kind of rules with an iron fist and everything is do as I say, not as I do, and every decision is being made. And it's a very dictatorial type of environment. And it's been my experience that you don't get the best out of people, whether that's in a workplace or whether that's on a sport team, when people feel like they're being talked down to and they're being treated like kids and they're not being respected for who they are. And in my case, when I'm coaching women for anywhere from the ages of 23 to 35, 37 years of age, these are adults and, and I treat them like adults and uh, they're given an opportunity to have input into the decisions that we make. That doesn't mean that because they might want to do something a particular way that, that every time they want to do something differently, that the coaching staff are going to agree with it, but they certainly know that they're going to be heard. And they know that at the end of the day where we can be flexible and where we can allow them to influence things that we do, they have the opportunity to do so. And I think, those types of things are all of the types of things that contributes to creating a winning culture and a winning environment. So I don't know that I would call it an expertise in winning, but I would say that it has certainly been a recipe for success in terms of the consistency of success that we've had and the ability to perform at a high level over an extended period of time. I believe that those are all the ingredients that have set us up for success long-term. That was a, a great answer. Thanks, Mark. And you know, I wanted to dive in a little bit more into the team culture there. And do you think that team culture can create um, a competitive advantage for your teams? And, and if so, why? I absolutely do, Derek. I think that culture is, uh, it's certainly become the buzzword. You know, now when we talk about sport or business, culture's become the word that uh, is most aptly used to describe an environment. But I think if you look at the history of great teams across sport, um, you'll often hear, you know, coaches and athletes both talk about the environment. You know, what is it about the environment that, that breeds success? If we look at the New England Patriots in football, you know, the constant is Bill Belichick, and he's won eight Super Bowls. And even in years when the Patriots weren't considered to be the perennial team in the league, they found their way to the second or third round of the playoffs or lost in the Super Bowl game. And so when you look at that kind of consistent success, uh, the common denominator is him and a coaching staff. So there's no question that he's been able to create a culture of winning and a culture of high standards and a culture whereby it doesn't seem to matter who retires from that team or who they lose through uh, trades or who comes in from another team. Everyone seems to come in, fit in and do what's expected of them. And so absolutely there's a competitive advantage when you have an environment where you can change the pieces but you still get the same type of results i think it's important that you know to me culture is a norm and, it, and it's it's how we treat one another and and it's what's considered to be acceptable in the environment and again you know we've all been a part of teams where we would probably say the culture was low or the bar was low or there wasn't an expectation around performance or behavior or how people carried themselves and that usually shows up in terms of how you play and especially how you play when you're playing under pressure and, and the chips are down. So to me, the teams that have historically done well in sport that I've observed and the individual sport athletes, they're people who hold themselves to a higher standard probably than, than any of us could as their coach. And their cultural norms are, are excellent. Their hard work, their commitment, their putting in the effort, putting in the time, doing the things that need to be done, doing the little bit extras that need to take place. Those are, those are the things that that's the standard they've set. And that is their norm. And therefore when they get in those larger moments on a world stage and they have to perform, 
it's a little bit like deja vu. They've been there before. They've done this before. This is no different than last week or last month's training session. And I think that makes a huge difference. And I believe the healthier the culture is, the greater the likelihood of success, be it as an individual athlete or a part of a team. So you mentioned here already the word individual. And would you describe the characteristics of a winning individual? Well, I'm going to make an assumption, Rick, when we say winning, we're talking about an individual that is, is successful, wins championships, or is it considered a champion? And, and so to me, when I think about characteristics of winning in general, I think about strong work ethic. I think about incredible self-discipline. Uh, I think about um, curiosity, you know, looking for new ways to improve, not, not settling on because what I've done this week or last week is good enough for me to be better than the group I'm competing with. I'm going to stay there. I'm, I'm always looking for a way to gain an edge and be, you know, five or 10% better every day. I think being comfortable with being uncomfortable, that's probably the one thing as coaches, we don't do as good a job as we could do in preparing athletes that we, we sometimes have a tendency of letting them stay in their comfort zone a little too long. And, and, When that happens, they become really confident in being able to do things to a certain point, but it's beyond that point when the trouble starts. And we as a staff have probably contributed to that um, complacency because we haven't pushed you know, as hard as we need to. And I also think you have to be intrinsically motivated. Uh, you know, to be good at anything, you have. It, I think to be good or to want to be good, and when I say good, not just good, I'm talking exceptional, I think it's uncommon. I don't think many people wake up in the morning and say, I want to be the best CEO in the world, or I want to be the best, um, you know, basketball coach in the world, or I want to be the best hockey player in the world. I think there's, there's, it's a very small group of people who actually go to bed at night with that on their mind and wake up in the morning with that as one of the first things they want to do. And, um, and I think that people who do have that quality it comes from, it's internal. You want to be the best because every day you wake up, there's a drive and a need and a desire to be better than the people you compete with. And so when I think about characteristics of a winning individual, those would be the things that I think drive success in those people. So broadening that to, to team sports, what are, what are the characteristics you would describe of a, a winning team? I really think, uh, Derek, we're talking about the same. You know, I think winning teams have strong work ethics. Uh, I think of the New Zealand All Blacks and the success they've had in the rugby world over, over decades. And there's a book that's been written by James Kerr called Legacy, that if coaches haven't read it, I would suggest that it's the best blueprint to success that you could ever read in a sporting context. And it talks about, in that book, it talks about culture. It talks about discipline. It talks about raising the bar. It talks about holding one another accountable. It talks about the character. You know, one of the things they say in the book is, you know, better all blacks make better people. Um, that's how serious they are about the character of people. They want to be part of that program and they recruit people based on character that not just anybody gets to wear the silver fern on their chest. You have to be somebody that is not only has exemplary rugby skills, you have to be an exemplary individual. And so I think that winning teams are comprised of people who The common denominator in those people are that they work hard, they are self-disciplined, they want to be better, they're comfortable with being challenged, and they're all intrinsically motivated to be the best they can possibly be. And I think when you're lucky enough, I think that's rare. I mean, the, the All Black success is rare. The New York Yankees success is rare. There's not a lot of teams that have 
shown you know historical success decade after decade after decade or sustainable success and i think in those situations in sport in particular where we see dynasties and teams that have been and organizations that have been able to raise the bar and perform at a very high level on a consistent basis i would suggest that the people that are leading those programs and the types of people that are attracting to those programs very much have those characteristics yeah and just another team which comes into my mind overall is at the moment, I don't know how much you follow soccer, but Bayern Munich is a very consistent soccer team. And I'm since I'm a small kid, I'm a very huge Munich supporter. But for the reasons that what kind of culture they have been creating mm-hmm. and what kind of attitude they have in the team and that Mia Sang Mia, it's like everyone is living it and it's a big family environment and everyone is working towards the same goal and there you can really see these character characteristics inside the team you have been mentioning and now they have been winning eight championships in a row and I think it comes with this consistent approach and that mm-hmm. leading to my next question is this this just doesn't come from anywhere so how do you develop develop these character characteristics and an overall positive culture You know, I'm not sure, Rick, that that a coach can be solely given responsibility for that. I think when you get to the adult stage, and Byron Munich is a great example, you know, these men, their their characters have been shaped in many cases many years before they arrived at, you know, that level to be able to play. So I think in some cases you're inheriting good people who've been led by good people, and you're very fortunate if you're the recipient of that. But the other thing I think is that I think that when you come to an environment where you're going to be part of a team that has a legacy of success, I think there's a pressure to conform. You know, you want to be part of this team. You want to be part of where they're going. You've never won a championship. You've never won a ring. You want to experience that. And when you come in the door, you're looking around at the people around you and you're trying to figure out how they do what they do because you really want to be able to do the things that they do. So I think some of it comes from being in an environment where winning has, is, has become the norm and now you're just simply coming in and doing your part. I think the hardest part of that is, is shaping it. And when I think about our own national team, you know, in the 12, 13 years that I've been involved, you know, when I inherited this program back in 2009 after the Beijing Olympics, you know, we were a pretty broken and dysfunctional group for a whole lot of reasons. And Part of the challenge the first three years that myself and our staff had was how do we sort out fact from fiction? How do we figure out who really wants to be here versus who's been doing this so long it's become habit? And then more importantly, how do we turn the page and start to build on past failures and mistrust and all of the things that come with dysfunctional groups? And it took us about five years to really move ourselves from playing with a group that were, you know, that were able to play that had skill, but really didn't have the character or the culture to be a successful team to actually shaping things in a direction where you were starting to see those layers of success happen and the culture change with it. So I think there's, there's occasions like perhaps we've had where you have a chance to really influence and shape it. But I also think that there's times when you're just lucky enough to inherit good people And, uh, and then it's a matter of them fitting in and because they want to be successful, um, you know, you fall, you fall in line and you do your part. And I think the New England Patriots, as I said earlier, would be the best example. It doesn't seem to matter where Bill Belichick gets his players from. They show up in New England and they fit in and they do their part. 
And more often than not, they're playing in Super Bowl games because of it. So now we've, we've been mentioning kind of winning as this result almost as of the, the team culture and, and the team environment that you're in. But what about the reverse? Does, does winning have any impact on the, the team environment that surrounds the, the players and the coaching staff? I think it absolutely does, Derek. I think that when you are successful, success breeds success. Everyone wants to be around a winner. Everybody wants to understand what it is. What's the magic recipe that allows you to be successful year in and year out? And, and those are the, sort of the serial winning coaches, the people who win and win and win. Um, you know, I think of Jose Marino. You know, whether you like him or not, he's a winner. You know, you can dislike his arrogance. You can dislike, you know, some of the behaviors he exhibits. But the man has gone. Everywhere he's gone, he's won. And so very clearly behind closed doors in a locker room environment, he has a special gift to be able to bring people together, to make them believe in the cause, to make them to believe in his approach. And more often than not, when they've done that, they've been successful. So I think coaches have a huge role in being able to shape that and create the environment. Um, but again, it's about bringing people with you. You have to have people that support you that are able to help with that. I mean, I would suspect that with Jose Marino, he doesn't show up you know, um, to a new soccer club on his own, he probably shows up with a staff of people. There's probably four or five people that are his people that travel with him, that coach with him, that understand the way he wants things done. And those people are the ones that get in and infiltrate the team and start to help shape and mold the culture with him as the architect of, at the end of the day, how things are going to be done. So I think coaching staffs have everything to do with shaping culture and creating environments uh, where teams can be successful. So when you think about the, the kind of impact of, of winning or, or losing uh, on the team, culture or the team culture, the team environment overall, how do you kind of in, in, um, counteract those impacts of, the, of winning and losing in terms of you know, not letting the, the team kind of get too complacent with where they are if you're having a ton of success or kind of picking it up from you know, several losses or just a kind of continuous set of losses? Yeah. Well, I'll tackle the losses thing first in terms of, I think, how you can turn a negative into a positive. You know, two years ago, we were playing in a women's professional fastest league in the United States called the MPF, and we, we lost eight consecutive games after winning our 11 of our first 12. And it happened, you know, a couple of weeks before the Pan American Games, three weeks before the Pan American Games, which was an event that we were defending champion of and, and heavily favored to be a medalist in, in that event. And... You know, we were losing games. We were losing close games. We were losing two to one, three to two, four to three. It wasn't this that we were getting blown out, but we just weren't on the right side of it. And what we immediately did as a coaching staff, the league was very competitive. We had a, an approach where we wanted to make sure that all of our players got to play. So we didn't want to risk injury for overuse or things like that. So there were nights when, quite frankly, our lineups were not as strong as they could have been, but that was okay. And the athletes were told this in advance so that the expectation wasn't to show up for 44 games and play the best lineup every night. It was to play as well as we could, but give other people a chance to develop and people a rest as they needed it, et cetera. So the athletes understood what the plan was about three games, four games into the losing streak and, and losing is no fun. And it doesn't matter whether or not you can rationalize how or why you lost a loss is a loss. So what we did as a coaching staff, when we realized that we had hit a little bit of a flat spot and we weren't, things weren't going our way was we started to, really focus on improving specific things in each game. So for example, 
if we were facing a left-handed pitcher tonight, we wanted to really focus on being able to hit the outside pitch to the opposite field. Or we wanted to ensure that if we had leadoff runners on, we executed a sacrifice punt to get them to second base. So we got into almost micromanaging parts of the game that we could actually we could actually track so that regardless of the final score, we could go back to the goals that we set for that game and we could judge our performance based on did we achieve those goals. So we took the focus off of the winning and losing and we put the focus on executing small pieces of things that we knew that down the road at the Pan Am Games and then a month later at the Olympic qualifier, which we were hosting in Canada, these were the things that were going to be the difference makers for us when it mattered the most. So we took the emphasis off of the winning in the now, and we put the emphasis on executing in the now to be better for down the road when we needed to be. And, you know, we would, as a staff, we would talk about sort of the temperature of the team. You know, you lose game four, knowing the personalities, watching people interact with one another. How's the group doing? You lose game six. How's the group doing? You lose game eight. How's the group doing? Now, we immediately turned it around after that and, and got back to our winning ways. But the point being is that that eight-game losing streak, we simply turned it into ways in which we could measure success, you know, one step at a time. And what we found in doing that was that the athletes were more focused on the execution of certain things, less focused on the final outcome. Therefore, if the final outcome didn't go our way, we, we had fewer people bent out of shape about it because we were focused on bigger things to be better as a team. So I think as a coaching staff, you have to have the, uh, the intuition and, and the foresight to understand that you're going to go through some flat spots in a season. And sometimes no matter how well you prepare and how well you play, things aren't going to go your way. And how do you as a coach change the focus uh, of the athletes and the attention of what needs to be done so that you allow them to see small victories and things, especially when the team isn't playing well, so that they stay committed and and focused on bettering themselves with each other you mentioned in the beginning of the answer the word competing and it doesn't matter in what kind of sport you compete in order to be successful you need to survive playoffs it doesn't matter if it's nfl nhl mlb or nba mm -hmm. and how do you develop competitive habits i think you create competitions You know, you, you, you make things about competition. If you have a drill, you find a way to reward whoever performs the drill best. So you look at creating mini competitions in everything they do so that they realize that every time they step on the field, somebody's keeping track and, and there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And um, I think just by virtue of the caliber of the level that the athletes play, they're obviously competitors. You wouldn't be there and putting yourself through that if you weren't. But I think as a coaching staff, you look to create those competitive opportunities within your training every day so that it's just you're layering on to what they have to do when they're playing in a game and when the outcome of the score matters. And so the more you can create an environment where they're competing for things, the easier competing comes to them. In fact, it just becomes an expectation. The moment I put my glove on my hand or the moment I pick the bat up, I'm competing for something. And I think that's part of how we teach people how to be more competitive. So do you have um, kind of any idea of what are competitive habits or do you think it's kind of just comp being competitive overall? I mean, I think we're all, we all come with different traits. I think there's some people I've met who are, you know, so competitive that it doesn't matter what you do. They, they try to find a way to compete. And there's other people I've met that it's sort of situational competitiveness. I, I think that to be honest with you, 
my personality is situational. You know, there's things that I am involved with, you know, and golf is one of them. I'm an avid golfer and I love the sport, but, um, and I, you know, I play to a single digit handicap. So I have expectations around how I play, but I don't really care, you know, how somebody else next to me plays, unless I've got, it's one of my buddies and we're playing for a beer after the match or lunch after the match. I could care less how they shoot or what they're doing, whether it's better than me, whether it's worse than me, because I'm focused on my own performance and what I'm trying to do. But if I compare that to my days as an athlete, as a softball player, every time I stepped on the field, I wanted to win. And that was my expectation. And coming second wasn't, wasn't okay. And it wasn't an option. It's not what I, what I played for. So I think it just depends on how people are hardwired. Some people are about needing to be the first in line. You know, I can think of players on my team, you know, who, the moment we get off the team bus and we're walking to a restaurant or we're going somewhere, it's interesting, but there's people that you will see that they just have to be at the front of that line. You know, they're not pushing and shoving anybody to get there, but you can just tell in their mannerisms and in their body language that being one of the people in that line is not good enough. They need to be at the front of that line. And as a coaching staff, we sometimes joke about it because we know who those individuals are. And so now you watch to see who's going to beat who to the front of the line or, or whatever that might be, because it's just in their nature to be that way. And then there's other people who you put them into that game and they're, they're extremely competitive, but when the game's over, you know, they're, they're, they're introverts, you know, they, 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 they don't have, they're not competitive. They don't care, but, but in that particular moment they do. So you know, I, I think it's a very individual thing and it, it's a matter of how important it is to you. And um, I think you can coach com competitiveness in people, as I talked about a few moments ago, in terms of creating an environment where we compete for what we do and it's about a result. But I think at the end of the day, we are kind of true to our natures, like who we are is who we are. And I think there's things that that sometimes motivate us more than others to be well, to do well at. And um I think it's a function of just your personality. Or at least that's been my experience. I don't have any scientific evidence to support that, but I, I feel like it's a function of personality. So you mentioned now already in your answer that that you develop competitive by competitive environments by creating mini mini competitions. Mm -hmm. And how do we actually can recognize that a team or individual is competing? At his, at his best level? Well, I, I think that comes, Rick, from kind of knowing your team and knowing your athletes and, and often comes from testing in the front end of things. So, for example, you know, we have testing. We do technical testing for softball where we, we have benchmarks and we understand where every player on the team falls within those benchmarks. And, you know, the first time you do it, is the data accurate or is it really consistent? Maybe, maybe not. Second time you do it, You get to compare that to the previous one. By the time you've got four or five sets of data in there, you have a pretty good sense of that player's profile and of what he or she are capable of doing. And so the starting point to me then come, becomes, based on what they've proven to be able to consistently do, what's the next step? So if I've got a player that can throw the ball overhand 62 miles an hour, but I want her to be able to throw the ball overhand at 65 miles an hour, Then we start from there. What are some of the things we need to do to make her arm stronger, to improve her technique and her mechanics, to make sure that we can help her pick up an extra few miles an hour with throwing velocity? So I think you have to have a baseline. You have to understand accurately where the athletes are to begin with. And then once you know that, well, then you've got a place to start to be able to. Because the other thing, too, is that we all want to measure success. 
you know, the moment you start to pay attention and our running scores, our sprinting scores is one of them. The moment one of our players runs the basis or, or, or competes a sprint, they're right back to the person who was scoring it to say, how did I do? And the next time they run that drill, they want to obviously best the score that they just got. So I think once you create that benchmark and they know what the benchmark is for them and what they're working against, I think quite naturally, if you're coaching in a competitive sport environment, athletes want to better their score. So providing the structure for them to see where they are and to talk about with them where they'd like to go. And this is where the athlete buy-in is important. I think sometimes as coaches, we see potential in an athlete and we have expectations of where that athlete can go or how they can develop, but we don't have a conversation with the athlete to find out how they feel about that. You know, do they want to be able to do these other things? And I think with younger athletes in particular, I know I've been guilty of this where a younger athlete shows up and they've got a ton of athleticism. And in my mind, I'm thinking about all of the things that this athlete will be able to do with some instruction and some feedback and some hard work. And only to find that that athlete is only out here playing today because their best friend came. And they just happen to be a natural athlete that likes softball, but also happens to like hockey and also happens to like basketball and also happens to like volleyball. And they have no interest in being nearly the softball player that I would envision they could be because softball is not their priority. So I think as coaches, sometimes it's about taking a step back and having that conversation with the athlete about what are your goals? What are your aspirations? How good do you want to be? How hard are you willing to work towards this? How important is this to you? There we have a starting point. Athlete sees her score. Athlete has said to you, hey, I want to throw the ball three miles an hour harder. Well, I want to run a split second faster. I want to be able to lift 20 more pounds. Well, if they're bought in and they want to be better, well, now we're both pulling on the rope in the same direction. But I think it's important as coaches that we just don't make assumptions. And I think with younger athletes, sometimes we as coaches have, we've got the pathway to them becoming who we think they can be figured out. And the athlete's not been part of that conversation. And oftentimes that's not their priority. And we, we become disappointed as coaches because of that. But the truth of the matter is, is we never gave the athlete a say in where we think they could go versus where they want to go. That's, that's really interesting and, and a, a really, I think, powerful perspective um, on the topic. So I, I had a question there because a lot of what you were just mentioning is kind of internal competition, always trying to, to beat yourself and then better yourself. So do you find that there's a better way to compete, whether it's versus yourself or kind of in order to be others? And, and if so, how do you get the athletes to kind of focus on, on which kind of competition? Well, I think as a coach, it's about variety. You know, we get bored if we do doing the same things over and over. So I think it's about creating that external competition that's maybe outcome-based and then creating the internal competition, which is how do I simply get better at this? How do I do this faster? Um, we did uh, some work with our athletes where we had them wearing strobe glasses. And these strobe glasses are glasses that I think there's eight different levels of flashing. So from a really slow flash where basically you could play catch or you could hit a moving, moving ball because the um, glasses were not flashing fast enough to impede your vision up to level eight where they're constantly flashing and you can't see the target that you're swinging at or throwing to, but for you know nanoseconds because of how, how much the glasses are flashing. Um, so one of the things we did with the athletes was they all got a chance to wear the strobe glasses. And then we said to them, based on your comfort level, 
here's the drill we're going to do. You put the glasses on the level that you think you're most comfortable with. Now, almost to a person, they all put them on a level that was too far advanced. And so they had, they had failure, which then forced them to move it back a few levels so that they could start to master some success with it. But the point is, they got to do it. We didn't say, everybody put it on level three, everybody put it on level four. We said, try them on, see what they look like. Now, here's the drill. You figure out where you want to start. And so by doing that, they had some say in, in how they were going to uh, tackle this particular task and how they were going to figure things out for themselves. And so I think you have to have variety and you have to give them opportunities for self-discovery. I think as coaches, the greatest job we can do is lead athletes to opportunities and, and show them what is possible and then get in there and help them when they want our help. But I think oftentimes, as younger coaches in particular, we sometimes want success for the athlete more than the athlete wants it for themselves and we're disappointed and we're frustrated when they don't want to work as hard or it doesn't seem to mean as much to them but again i go back to you've never asked them why they're here you've never asked them why they're doing this you've made assumptions and at the end of the day you're disappointed because their they, they, your assumption doesn't match their goal so but variety i think is the is the critical piece we we, we offer just enough of each to keep them motivated and interested and we give them some say in what they do so that they can own their performance and they can own the preparation. That's, that's a powerful answer. So moving on, um, how do you, how do you see the, how do you see winning through the pathway, pathway, pathway of an athlete and, and when should it become kind of an essential focus for the, the coaches and the, the athletes themselves? I think one of the biggest failures of, and I'll speak to the sports system in Canada because I can't speak to a sports system in any other country, but I think one of the biggest failings of our system in this country is that we have not learned, generally speaking, to understand that a coach, at, a person who's coaching eight-year-olds or 12-year-olds or even 14-year-olds in most sports, you are simply layering what the athlete has learned from the two previous years within that age group to refine the skills they come with and develop a couple more and pass them on. And if through this experience, you happen to have a good enough group of athletes that while you are helping them develop their skills and whatever the sport is, that they happen to win what I call the meaningless age group championship, whether it's provincial or regional or national, if you're lucky enough to have kids that along this developmental pathway have also won an event, good for you, but at the end of the day, that's not the goal. And in my opinion, for too many coaches, they tie their own sense of self-worth to whether or not they win the U12 national championship or they win the U14 national championship. And so what tends to happen when that is the coach's focus is that we don't develop kids. We play the kids who are the most skilled within the age group at the expense of other kids who don't get to learn and develop because they haven't matured enough to be better than some of the kids who are ahead of them. And so by the time those kids who haven't had the same opportunity or given, or given the same attention reach 13 or 14, they've quit sport because sport's not a fun place to be because what I've learned, my buddies can right now, I'm really not welcomed here. In the meantime, the small few who are good enough to continue to be a little bit better than the age group, they get all of the opportunities and the rest of them don't. My belief of age group sport is that we should be bringing kids along with benchmarks to show improvement. 
And what, what every athlete wants to see, whether it's, well, athlete, what every child wants to see is they want to see how they're getting better. Whether it's a reading skill and I can read bigger words, whether it's a spelling skill and I can spell bigger words, whether it's a soccer drill and I can kick the ball harder or further, it doesn't matter. Kids want to see improvement. So my job as a youth coach is to help every child reach his or her potential based on their skill, their level of ability. And I think that at the youth level, we get confused with that. And we and too much of it becomes about, did we win the championship? Are we going to nationals? Uh, you know, I, I've, I've had colleagues that I work with in the sports system talking about power plays for 12-year-olds. And I've heard fathers arguing about who should be on the power play with a 12-year-old. And all I can think about is, what is wrong with you people? Who gives a shit who's on the power play at 12? They should all get to play the power play at 12. That's how they learn and develop. So in my humble opinion, we've got it, we've got it backwards. We're too focused on winning, not focused enough on athlete development. And I think because of that, quite honestly, across sport, we probably miss as many kids as we hit in terms of who has the greatest potential because we drive kids out of sport because we don't give them equal opportunity to learn and develop. Is there in your eyes a difference between winning and success? Uh, between winning and success, is there a difference? I, I mean, I guess there's a difference if, if winning is what motivates you. To me, you know, I think back many, many, many years ago when our daughter uh, got involved in youth sport and I ran a, a, an entry-level program for kids to play softball. And I told the parents from the very first day, this is not about wins or losses. It's about your daughter coming out and having fun. And as long as she leaves with a smile on her face, I've done my job. And so, you know, a very quick story. We, we, we started this in May of that year. And from May through mid-July, twice a week for an hour and a half, we got together and we did skill drills and games. And I, I modified games so that every child, regardless of coordination level, could catch and throw and have fun and, and be happy. And at the end of every session, they got a popsicle or a freezy and they left with a smile on their face. And Sunday morning, they were back ready to do it again. And probably somewhere around the first part of July, parents started with the, well, when are we going to play a game? And I said, we're not going to play games. The kids are having fun. We're playing modified versions of the games. They would have been about eight or nine years of age. Um, we're just going to play and have fun. We're just going to teach them some basic fundamentals of the sport. And they come out for these twice in two days a week and they get some exercise with their friends. So towards the end of July, my wife said to me one day, you know, don't you think it would be good if they could play a game of some kind? And, you know, I thought about it. And my greatest fear, to be honest with you, was because we hadn't played any kind of structured or formal games. I didn't know if they'd understand the concept of a game because we hadn't run the basis and scored runs and counted runs and done the things that you would do in the way the game is traditionally played. But I contacted one of the local associations in the city. We live in a rural area, this, the city where the ball is more developed. And I spoke with the, um, the president of the association and I described to him the age and stage of our kids and that I wanted to, you know, as the year end, I wanted to do a game for them, but I was really concerned that, you know, they, they had never played a formal game. They didn't understand the rules formally. And so I, would they have a team within their association that would be at that age and stage where we could have a game and it'd be fun and our kids not be, you know, uh, embarrassed by their skill and, and, and not want to play softball. And so he and I agreed and he brought a team up to play and Long story short, we played a modified game of about four innings and my kids 
outperform these other kids by so much it wasn't even funny and some of these other kids had played structured softball for a couple of years and what i learned through that experience quite by accident was that by teaching the fundamentals of the game teaching them how to throw teaching them how to field teaching them how to do the little things that are part of becoming more skilled that in that six weeks or whatever we did it twice a week where we rehearsed these drills using different ways of doing it that my kids fundamental skills were considerably better than those kids who had been playing three years of organized softball and that had happened in six weeks so what it really reinforced for me was that if we are focused on teaching kids how to play the game properly to me that was the success i could care less about winning because we weren't trying to win I just wanted the kids to learn how to play the game and have enough skill at learning how to play the game that if they wanted to continue with softball, which most of them didn't, they went on and played soccer a year or two later, which was fine, my daughter included, but it was about making sure they had a good experience and they learned fundamental skills. Our daughter went on to be uh, a Canada Games, which in our, which in our country is a, it's an all-star type of event that's played every four years within a particular age group. Our daughter went on to play for our province in volleyball as a Canada Games athlete. She played collegiately as a Canada Games athlete. And in volleyball, she's a power side. So she's a left side hitter, which is a very strong arm. You hit the ball very hard. You, you are one of the, more, the better point generators in, in, you know, in that sport. One of the reasons that my daughter's skills were so high at a younger level in the position she played was because the, the skill to hit the volleyball hard is like a throwing skill. Because of all the times we played catch and I taught her how to play to throw the ball correctly with proper mechanics, the transfer was she became a provincial level and national level volleyball player because she learned how to throw the ball properly in softball. Now that was a complete accident because I didn't know at nine she was going to play volleyball. But my point once again being is what is success? Well, success is teaching kids fundamental skills that they can apply in other sports or that they can apply in other activities they do to allow them to have a healthy sport experience for life. And if a percentage of those kids happen to go on to become really good at something and become world-class, well, then you can, you can be happy that you played some small role in helping that child love sport enough to stick with it to become good at something. That's, that's my philosophy on it. I'm not suggesting that it's the right philosophy. But I think if we were more concerned about giving kids good experiences and teaching them good fundamental skills, we'd keep more kids in sport and success would be less defined by winning and more defined by kids that stayed in sport and moved through other sports because of the confidence they drew from, from having somebody teach them how to be good at something. That's really interesting. And I think um, one of the things that we talk about a lot on the, on the show and in our, in our school here is, you know, success is kind of measured for, for youth sports coaches on how many kids are coming back to play the next year and you know now even broadening that to how many kids are just still in sport next year regardless of whether it's not still in your sport that's right that's right so we say kids vote with their feet you know who shows up if they yeah. keep coming back or the numbers grow then you're doing something right yeah yeah so how do we ensure as coaches that our athletes experience this the success throughout their developmental path well, I think it goes back to environment, Derek. I think the environment sets the tone for all of it. You know, if a kid shows up and right away they're called by their first name and coaches are joking with them and high-fiving them and making them feel a part of it, regardless of my skill level, I'm, I'm, this is a safe place for me. It's a welcoming place for me. I can come here and be who I am and not be judged. 
I think those are the things that that um, that help kids, you know, excel and 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 enjoy sport. You know, we've all seen examples of kids who start off and and they're smaller than than perhaps the the kids in their age group, and and then the next thing you know, you know, you look at mom and dad when they come in the door, and dad's six foot five and mom's five foot eleven, and you're looking at this kid thinking sometimes she or he's going to hit a growth spurt, and sure enough, they do. And for the first two or three years of a sport, they were maybe the run of the litter, and the next thing you know, they show up one year. And they're taller than everybody else in the room, um, you know. But we've lost those kids sometimes before they have that growth spurt and and gain better coordination and better skill because we haven't given them a fun, happy, safe place to be, regardless of skill. So I think we, you know, the more we can provide opportunity for kids to just play and learn and experience and understand that if 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 a kid starts in softball which many of my kids did with me but they end up being soccer players or they end up being ringette players or they end up being hockey players that's not a that's not an indictment on softball not being a good fun safe place for kids to be it just means that what they did was they found out something they enjoyed more and now they're going to go on and do that and i think as coaches if we can take that approach and understand that it's about teaching them how to love sport for a lifetime we've done our job We have one more question for you, Mark. And what is your message that you would like to share with coaches regarding the topic and creating a positive team culture? I think it's really, really important that you understand why you're coach. Like, what is your coaching philosophy, your personal philosophy? Why are you willing to volunteer the time to come out and do this with this group? And I think the better we know ourselves and we know our motivations for doing things, the better the experience will make it for the people that we work with. And often is the case in my experience across all sports, we have people that come out to coach because they have their own belief on what they want the sport experience to be for kids. And if I'm coaching 12 year olds, but my mindset is that of a 16 year olds in terms of what I'm trying to teach them and the experience I'm trying to give them, there's two groups that are going to have a bad experience. The first group is the kid and the second group is the coaches because they can't do what I expect them to do And they're not having a good experience because I'm asking them to do things they can't do and they're having more failure than success. So understanding what your coaching philosophy is and why you do it, I think will help you figure out very quickly where you should be coaching. You know, if you're really good with young kids and it's about entry level sport and just giving kids a place to play and making it fun, then that's where you should coach. If you're a more competitive coach and you want to be in a more competitive environment, then seek out the competitive environment and go be where you need to be and get your coach education to support your learning. But I think the number one thing is know what you're best suited to do. Because if you don't, as adults, you drive kids out of sport. Because at the end of the day, you're the adult in charge. And when little Johnny or little Susie aren't having a great experience, they just don't come back. You know, you may have a parent or two that's going to speak up and be vocal if they're really um, offended by what you've done. But oftentimes kids just say, hey, I don't want to do that anymore. And the reason they don't want to do it anymore is because they're not having fun. And the reason they're not having fun is because the coach isn't making it fun. So I think the number one thing as coaches we need to do is to look in the mirror and take a hard look at what do we want to do? What's our motives for doing this? And make sure that we're aligning what we want to do with the age group we coach so that it's a fit. And if it's a fit, well, then everybody involved is going to probably have a pretty good experience. I think that's a, a great final message. So Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we list, wish you the be best of luck on the, the road to Tokyo 2021 and, and best of luck in the tournament over there. So 
um, yeah, thanks for joining us. It was a great conversation. No worries, guys. Thanks for having me and uh, good luck with this. It's a great, uh, it's a great initiative and uh, I hope you're successful with it. time thanks to mark for taking the time and joining our show it was a very strong conversation and the first takeaway for me was that actually as he has been saying in the beginning that in order to create a purpose-driven and value-based environment you really need to surround yourself with good people who have the same goals in their head who have the same motivation and who strive for the same thing and who have the same ambition also Yeah, for sure. It was one of the more important things that, that I took away from the episode and something that he said right off the bat is, you know, when you're creating these winning environments, you need to, you need to surround yourself with the right people and, and the right people are ones that are willing to be challenged by you and, and willing to challenge you as well. And I think that that right kind of challenge, it, it takes everyone to the, to the next level. And I think that's a really important characteristic when you, when you think about winning cultures and And taking yourself to that, you know, established and, and continued success. And he also mentioned, you know, in this, in that part of the conversation that when people see your human side, uh, you get a little bit more buy-in. And so you shouldn't really separate those two. You should let, let your athletes, let your coaching staff see that you're, you're also human, you make mistakes and that you're learning as well. And, and that creates a little bit more buy-in from you, from the people within your environment. Yeah, and an additional or another piece I found very interesting and another winning element is, as, as he has been describing, is that if you really want to run a successful program or successful club, you really, first of all, you need to set high standards and then you need to live up to those, those every day. And as he has been saying, the higher the bar, the more people push themselves in an uncomfortable situation. And I think it's really also that actually that If you have this kind of culture where you really work goal oriented and where you really want to where you really want to achieve something, I think it pushes people automatically and makes them willing to work harder by themselves just by the culture and environment you actually create and uh, you live up every day. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's that's something we talk a lot about here in our in our program, because it's just that idea of goal setting and the, and the benefits of having something that you want to achieve that's kind of just beyond your reach and you know moving into the the characteristics that you described for a successful or winning individual you know it's it's one of those it's comfortable being uncomfortable you have to be you have to feel normal living outside of your your comfort zone and pushing yourself to the to the max if you want to be be one of the best and You know, the other one that I really took away that I thought was was really interesting was this curiosity one that he mentioned. And being a curious individual leads to leads to becoming better. And you always have to find ways to make yourself a little bit better, push yourself beyond your opponents and and kind of really stand out. And that takes curiosity. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and I think curiosity is a really, really big reason why we are making this show. It's just because it's just so First of all, it's a lot of fun to explore a lot of things. And secondly, it's just very interesting to cover a lot of themes and really getting a broader 
perspective on things and really to strengthen our horizon. And also I found very, very interesting when he was saying that in the, in the conversation that if you really want to run a successful program that the example, as he has been saying, that good is not good enough. And in addition to that, first of all, is that what is really important to me also, and we have been talking about this several times here as well, that if you really want to have a successful program or also you want to have really development inside your team, you really need to um, have competition in the team. And I think that's, that's something, a big reason why everyone wants to play because players want to compete. And um, how do we actually create competitive environments? I think he had a really, really good answer there is that we really need to, inside that competitions, we need to create mini competitions. So I think it's just very important that for everything what we do, there needs to be, first of all, we need to count. Secondly, so we hold the athletes accountable and then there also needs to be some kind of consequence and some kind of reward. Because I think that's a really, really important piece to push players button. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, it's something that was really interesting to me when you, when we were listening to him talk about those competitive habits and, and how to instill those. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that I took away from that piece of the conversation was that you can, you can lead athletes um, to the, to the opportunities and, and then you can kind of help them when they, when they want to be helped. And I think that that is, that was a really interesting piece of the, the conversation for me around that idea of competition and, you know, it's, he, he mentioned it having to be a kind of a balance between internal competition within the athlete themselves or external competition, you know, between athletes, between teams. And I think that that's a, a really interesting piece too. You know, you, you, you want to make the athlete kind of better themselves and push themselves and beat themselves, but also, you know, competing against your teammates and competing against opponents. It's a, it's, it's also a good way to, to push yourself beyond your limits. And I think, I think it, I agree with him where it needs to be, it needs to be a balance and, and you need to instill that and, and kind of build up that competitiveness and everything that you do. And, you know, going back to the, the characteristics of, of winning individuals, you know, he also mentioned that characteristics of winning teams are, are very similar, you know, they're, they're pretty much the same. And, you know, it got me thinking about the, the work ethic that he mentioned. And, you know, when you're competing, you're, you're working hard. And I think, you know, if we, if we look back at, some of our previous conversations with previous guests, it's something that, that comes up a lot where, you know, working hard and, and full effort is what makes you better. And, and you have to have that in order to, in, in order to grow and, and competition is, is part of getting that effort out of your athletes sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's just so important. It's really that the most, the most interesting thing for me is that actually we are talking here so much about these things in the show, but if we go to practice that you have the opportunity to implement those things. And it's, again, it's just, I hope that the people who are listening to these, that um, there are a lot of good of practical examples and that everyone can take something out of it and that everyone has the opportunity to implement these things in, in the practice, because I feel that also with the information we get from here, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, really big help. And um, overall is that, I also, towards the end of the conversation, I found very good how he was phrasing is that, that too, too many coaches 
um, they coach with their own interest. And we also need to think a little bit further, further that what happens if coaches coach the majority of the time with their own interest. It's maybe that, that the kids or the players, they don't enjoy the game anymore. And as he has been saying, if they don't meet the coach's expectations, I'm not, he, the player is not good enough. And then the consequences that if he, if the player feels this way, that he or she maybe quits. And that's, I think that no one wants this. And I found really, really cool how he was phrasing this, that because usually we say that fun, learn and return phrase, but how he has been saying is that kids vote with their feet. If they, if they enjoy, they come back and they vote with their feet. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was a, a really cool way to put it. And I think, you know, it, he mentioned it too when we when we were talking about winning versus success. You know, he mentioned that success is, is just leaving with a smile on your face. You know, if you had fun and if you want to come back. And I think that's something that we can repeat over and over again. And, and like you mentioned, some some coaches will will let it slip. And I thought it was really interesting too that, you know, he mentioned it that sometimes we want as coaches, we want success more for the athlete than than the athlete wants for themselves. And I think that's that's something that's really powerful too because we have to remember the the motivation behind what our athletes want you know what do they want out of sports do they just want to have fun with their friends do they want to become the best and and how do we help them reach those goals or how do we meet their level of motivation and their demand and i think that that's something that's really interesting and then if you're if you're coaching for yourself you know that's something that's very easy to overlook you know and yeah and something that's really easy to forget yeah and i i I think, um, you know, it really, it goes into his final message a lot. And I, I really like his final message is just figure out why you coach, you know, do you coach for yourself? Do you coach for the, the wins that your teams get? Or do you, do you coach to help people? Do you coach to help your athletes achieve what they want to achieve? And I think that's, that was a really powerful final message for Mark today. I thought, I thought it was great. Yeah. I, it's, it's something that I think that's you, first of all, you really need to recognize why are you coaching? And I think when you recognize this coaching process becomes much more enjoyable and all the time you, you reflect on it and it becomes more and more clear for you. And my, my final key or my final takeaway from the conversation with Mark is that treat adults like adults and treat kids like kids. Treat everyone appropriate. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that's a, a good place to, to leave it for today's episode with Mark Smith. So thanks everybody for listening. Uh, don't forget to connect with the show on social media at the coaches road. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Check out our new website, thecoachesroad.com, and let us know what you think as well as our new Google drive with all of the recommendations from our guests, including some books from Mark Smith that'll also be in the show notes. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a good week, and we'll see you on Thursday.